Would you turn in your Bibles uh, to Isaiah 40? I think it's page 508 in the Bibles in your seats. And we will get there eventually. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the nature of prophecy uh, before we do that. And I have in my hand uh, the most fear and dreaded book of my high school career. It's actually one of several. Um, And in addition, the Norton Anthology of World Masterpieces. It's uh, 2,000 pages. Uh, You know, I try to describe them as paper thin, but duh, it's paper, so it's thin. (laughs) But I mean, I can almost see you through this paper. And it's like, it's eight font. And it's full of uh, all the stuff you're supposed to read. Dante's Inferno and uh, Dr. Faustus, Hamlet, Paradise Lost. I'm told those are good. <laughs> I, uh, I did not like to read. I was a very poor reader um, in uh, grade school. I hated this book. And uh, they have, there's several, there's two of these and there's two with American literature and eventually you get to the section uh, where you get to poetry. And I remember distinctly feeling in, in high school, I guess it was high school, it's not a poem, it doesn't rhyme. You know, because when you finally get to good poetry, I am told it doesn't have to rhyme. And I have since come to appreciate a little bit of that. You know, good poetry requires work. To say something deep and true about the human condition, to be able to take things that you and I feel and identify with and create words that effectively say it is really hard to do, and it doesn't have to rhyme. If to uncover something that's that real is, uh, is, is really amazing. But if you don't like to read or if you're not, in, not a poetry kind of person and it, it doesn't rhyme, then it's just not worth the work, I think, sometimes. Uh, I think prophecy is a little bit like this. Prophecy in scripture, someone this week told me it feels like the matrix to look at, uh, to look at Isaiah and what do, you, what do you spend time on? What do you flip the page on? How do you understand? How do they relate? It is very, very difficult, I think, for like the average bi- student of the Bible to open to Isaiah. It's, it's not user-friendly and... Um, it doesn't rhyme, um, and that, that can make it hard. And so that's one of the reasons we're here together is to uh, try to uh, kind of walk through it together in a few careful ways uh, to allow the richness of God uh, to come out of it. You know, I think Christ quotes Isaiah more than any other prophet, or Christ and the ministry around Christ quote from the prophet Isaiah, uh, more than any other prophet. And so I think it's fruitful to be here. And the theme that we're in this month is, uh, has to do with what, 
we know that the wise men saw a star and came west, but we also know that they knew other things that a star simply doesn't communicate. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. I mean, there's a lot of information in that, more than simply what a star might convey. So where did they get that information? And we've been, this month, we're just toying around with the idea that the theme is, had they had the scroll of Isaiah, could they have anticipated the Christ as he came? In other words, if they were meditating on the scroll of Isaiah, impacted and convicted by what it had to say, and then a star appeared in a divine way, might, might the conviction matched with the star propel them west? That's, that's what we're, we're doing. And a little bit more practical, what, is, what are we supposed to think about Christ at Christmas? There are many, many things that are kind of simple, pithy, and they rhyme, and they're all blurted out at Christmas. Uh, what, what really is supposed to be our expectation of the Lord? That's, that's our goal. So last week we did Isaiah 9 through 11, and we saw that uh, out of Isaiah, uh, there's a very significant passage in 9 that says, For us, to unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's more said there, but there's, it's very clear, and it's followed up in 11 with a message that the Christ, the Messiah, the hoped, the one who was hoped for, would shoot out of the stump of Jesse. He would come from the family of David. And it described the king in a very odd way. It described this king who was a king of peace. It's in that passage that it says, and a little child will lead them. And it's in that passage that it says, a lion will lie down with a lamb. And so we see in 9 through 11, this anticipation of a great and glorious king, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, that there's this great holy king coming, and that this king is a king of peace. Now, if the wise men had just had the scroll of Isaiah and they had continued to read from Isaiah, they would have gotten into chapters 12 and and then into 13. And when you get to 13, something happens in the book. It's listed as an oracle over Babylon or an oracle concerning Babylon, which is a prophetic word specifically referring to Babylon. And more specifically, it's a word of judgment. It's watch out Babylon, God saw what you did. Okay? And that's followed in 14 with an oracle to Assyria and Philistia. Same thing, it's a word of judgment. And then 15, an oracle to Moab. 17 to Damascus, 18 to Cush, 19 through 20 to Egypt, 21 back to Babylon, 22 to Jerusalem, 23 to Tyre and Sidon. In other words, after this announcement of the Christ coming and this hope for the Christ coming, there's this survey of the ancient Near East in which in every case, the Lord has a very hard word of judgment to say to them. You have forsaken God. 
You have followed after things that are not God. You have done detestable things in my sight. You have harmed my people. You have not looked after the poor. You have, your priests have said lies to the people. Significant indictments to these people groups to include Jerusalem. Everyone is in trouble. You get to chapter 24, and the title is The Judgment of the Whole Earth. So the description, you know, 13 up to 24, it's kind of this survey of the countries around Israel to include Israel, and then he, the Lord steps back and summarizes the word with this judgment over the whole earth. And I don't mean it's a fun poem. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't rhyme. Sorry. But it is, it is really... Can a hard word from the Lord be beautifully arranged? I think so. It is, it's meticulous. Just listen to these just first couple sentences. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. I mean, this is being said to, to the world. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Think of that. I wish we were maybe less busy so we could meditate on these things. Take them home with us. He's going to twist the surface of the earth. This is a really beautiful part. Listen, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Whew. And that's three verses of a 23 verse chapter. I mean, it's significant. Can you imagine being wise? Holding, holding the word of God. I mean, it, this is not simply a, a recreation for the wise men. This is a recreation for discerning people of every kind to be holding the word and appreciate this is God's word to us and then to arrive in a chapter that says, God, when God comes, he's going to utterly judge the earth. And he notices, it's after, it's after a section where he says, he has not missed anything that has happened. All the people, and he's speaking, those countries assembled are the ones that are around, that are in the world of Israel at the time. And he's saying, everywhere I go, I've, I've watched what you did. And your God, your local God, is no God at all. I, the God of the Jews, am the God of the earth. I don't honor the territorial jurisdiction of your empire. I don't honor your stories about your God. They are nothing to me. I am God. And I saw what you did. Chapter 1 through 39 uh, of Isaiah is, is a part, is a book of Isaiah. It's a section of Isaiah. And in it is this very strong theme of God is sovereign, God is powerful, God sees unrighteousness, and he's going to deal with it. And in that, in this passage, there's these glimpses of hope. 
Look in 24. Well, you don't look in, just listen in 24. So, few, so in the 23 verses of doom, okay, burst out in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the chapter, this phrase. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to his name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of the glory of the righteous one. In all this word of judgment, somewhere in it is, for those who look to the Lord, this hope and this joy that comes out. I'd imagine being the wise men, not having the 2020 hindsight of Jesus, not having uh, all, all the books of the Bible assembled in a book like this to read, but having a scroll, having very limited fragment of the word of God, processing this God is going to come and he's going to judge the earth and all the unrighteousness in it. He's going to deal with every single injustice that's ever been done. And then seeing these glimpses of hope. Wondering maybe, am I part of the hope or am I part of the judgment? Well, that's the nature essentially of 1 to 39, but then you get to the 40th chapter. In the 40th chapter, we'll see more about it in the, a couple weeks to come. But for, for now, let's just say the 40th chapter is new. It is same author, same book, but it's a new part of the book. If, you, if it was a normal book you were reading, you know how some, chap, in book, some larger novels you'll read, these chapters might be under part one and these chapters may, might be under part two. Chapter 40 begins a new part of the book of Isaiah. It's very... Again, same author, same audience, same poet, new mood, new theme, a new idea. To those who might come out of 1 through 39 with a sense of fear, God shows a, a, a different side of himself here. Let me just read the first two verses of 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God gives two commands in this, in this chapter. The first one is comfort my people. He's, we don't know to whom he's speaking, I think the feeling is is that the Almighty God is speaking to the subjects of the Almighty God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort them. The double comfort in Hebrew is a poetic device. It means it's a super emphasis. Really comfort them. And then he says to them, speak tenderly to them. And tenderly there is not like gently... It's not because they're delicate. The, the intention of the Hebrew there is to, is to imply, speak to them in such a way that you really actually encourage their soul. Speak a word. Don't just say, you should be comforted. Good luck with that. It's not that. It's like stare them in the eye. Allow the love of God to come out and be seen in your face towards them. 
and say it in such a way that reaches into them and says, you are not alone. God wants you to know he's here to comfort you. That's the way he wants it to happen. Speak deeply into them. And what's the nature of the comfort? Your struggle and your hardship, it's over. Your iniquity has been pardoned. For years, I have, uh, I've misunderstood this passage. I used to get confused. I kind of read it that they are now being pardoned because they've paid double for what they've done wrong. Because of that last sentence, they've received double from the Lord's hand, double for all their sins. I thought, well, it's about time they got comforted. That's not, that's actually incorrect reading. The notion is you ought to be comforted because God has forgiven you. In fact, you've gotten double grace for your iniquity. Double grace. In other words, the comfort of God isn't simply wiping away what you've done wrong. It's wiping away, standing you up, rushing you off, giving you a hug, setting you on your way, and walking alongside of you and intending the best for you. It's double grace for your mistakes. Sometimes we think, you know, that the grace of Jesus Christ is just enough to barely forgive me today, but you better not mess up tomorrow, you know. I got my eye on you. I'm keeping my list and I'm checking it twice. We'll see how it goes. No, this is double grace. You sin, the Lord doubles down in grace. Paul would have said it this way, where sin aboundeth, grace did much more abound. That's the way he would say it. The the, the Greek in Romans is grace superabounded, where sin abounded. That's the spirit here. You ought to be deeply comforted because there is a God, despite his power and his decision to judge the earth, there is a God who wants to comfort you and wants to bring you grace. Is this kind of a loud chapter? Um, I would think if it was an instrument, it would be a trumpet and a major key, a joy to the world chapter. It's pretty bright. You get to the third verse. So you have God speaking and God commanding the speaking for other people to speak, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So it's God speaking, commanding others to speak. And then in the third verse, another voice cries out in all of that. So the voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This unidentified voice, I guess Isaiah is having this vision and he hears the Lord yell, comfort, comfort my people. Speak to them. And then a voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. By the way, have you ever heard that passage before? Some of you might think it's familiar. I used to think, make straight the path of the Lord, a highway for our God. I used to think the intention was that the path would be me straight so that I could find my way to God. I always understood it that way. That's not at all the meaning. The meaning is God is coming. Make the highway straight for him. 
This isn't about, this isn't about make the pathway straight so that you can trudge your way to the Lord. This is the comfort of God is so serious about his super-emphasized double-grace comfort that he's saying with a voice, prepare the way because I myself am coming to you to bring this comfort. The notion is like a king coming to a city, that the city would go out ahead of the king and dress the road up, make the road right, make the highway wide and clean, clear it out and straighten it up so that the king would have a regal arrival into the city. That's the idea. Is God himself is coming. I remembered when I, in the service, whenever the president of the United States would come to the base, which thankfully was rare, didn't matter what rank you were, you were painting rocks and cleaning windows. Like, there was just, make a highway clear, he's coming. You were putting on uniforms you'd never wore, walking in ways you never walked, and doing things that you never did to make it look like you were doing the job. That, so you weren't actually doing your job to make it look like you were busy doing your job. For the king, he was coming. That's the idea here. All flesh is going to see it. This is one of these, this is just kind of a, one of these prophetic moments. The first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, so often in the scripture, is superimposed on itself. Like in this time, they're looking, they're looking ahead, and but both comings seem so meshed, so part of the same thing. This, I would say some flesh has seen Christ, but not all flesh. But one day all flesh will, right? The dead will arise. And every knee will bow before Christ. I think that's present here. <clears throat> For those of you who thought this might be familiar, or even if you don't, John the Baptist uses this. In the Gospel of John, it's very interesting that John the Baptist would come here. It shows you it shows you they were anticipating God. So John the Baptist is baptizing people and priests are sent to John the Baptist to inquire about him. And so they arrive to ask who he is and he says, I'm not the Christ. He just comes right out of the gate. I'm not the Christ. To which they ask, this is John 1. Well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you the prophet? He says, No. And they say, well, who are you? We have to have something to take back to whoever sent us. And he says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path for God. It's interesting here. You hear this unidentified voice that even in the ministry of John the Baptist, how he almost unidentifies himself. The only thing he says is, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm just a voice. I'm an unidentifiable voice, that the glory of the Lord is so great. It doesn't matter who says it, it's who's coming that matters. This is uh, my favorite and most confusing part of this chapter. Verse six, a voice says, cry. And finally, Isaiah has a voice here. Okay, so you have God speaking, telling his people to speak, and then you have an, an unidentified voice and three crying out. Then you have another voice in six saying, cry. And then finally Isaiah says, what shall I cry? It's like a voice says, well, say something, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, what am I supposed to say? 
What do I say? Tell me what to say. The verses that follow, like 6, 7, and 8, I don't quite know, is this an interlude comment? Is this something that Isaiah continues to say? Or is this something that the voice says? I, the meaning is clear. Who's saying it is not clear. But the meaning is, in all of this, God's going to do it, right? The fifth verse ends with, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's going to do it. By the power of God, he's going to do it. This is not really an issue for mankind to worry about. God himself is going to do it. And so the passage just speaks to our, your and my finite irrelevance. All flesh is grass. All of its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. This is going to happen. God is going to do it. He alone is going to do this thing. He's coming, and he's bringing comfort with him. I find it interesting here, just, again, if we could just take the time sometimes to meditate. I mean, God's word is beautiful, do you notice that the, in one sense, God puts his breath in us, which gives us life? And here he puts his breath on us and it takes it. I find that interesting. You know? The same breath that gives, takes. Uh, he's so great. So I guess in nine, this is what Isaiah is supposed to do. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. In other words, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go up high, go to the high mountain, and shout from the high mountain with your high voice. Don't be ashamed. Shout it out. That's, that's the implication here. I want you to climb all the way up here, and I want you to open your arms up wide, and I want you to stare at mankind and say, Behold your God. He's coming. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is, this, this, this portion of the chapter has this dichotomy that we see so often, which is the glorious might of God, right? Shout from the highest mountain with the strongest voice. Don't be ashamed that the Lord's coming in glory and might and strength, and he's coming like a shepherd. And he's going to pull you to himself and carry you like a shepherd. I mean, what kind of God is coming? We saw this in the ninth chapter with this hope, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And how does it happen? It happens because to us a child is born and the son is given. In 11, we saw it again with, and a little child will lead them. Here we find the mighty and the sublimely gentle together. We'll read 42 first in a second. I just want to read a few verses in 42 in a second. But before we do, 
want to stop here. Just think about your anticipation. When you think of Christmas, when you think of Christ, how ought we think about him? You know, Christmas, listening to the music, listening, watching all the things that come and go, Christmas always preaches comfort to people. No matter what version of Christmas you're watching, they're preaching comfort to you. you watching a Toyota commercial, and they say, give yourself the gift of Christmas. You know, you've earned it. You go out there and you get your car. Comfort yourself this Christmas with our brand new car. Well over half of the Christmas songs that you and I listen to are romantic in nature. You know, all I want for Christmas is you. Mistletoe. I want to be home for Christmas. I want to be in your arms for Christmas. Man, that's got to be lonely for some people to hear those songs. You, what I'm saying is, is there is this message of comfort being preached from every single direction you can imagine at Christmas, and yet there is really only one true comforter. And we, what happens is it generates in us drama, soul drama, that's wanting real comfort and yet being directed to things that do not comfort. We want it. It fans, it blows on the coals of desire for love and comfort and then directs us to things that are less. You know, even all I want, for, all I want a white Christmas. I, everybody wants a white Christmas. What happens when it's not? It's 60 degrees today. We're not getting any white. Like, unless you want to put sheets out in your lawn, white sheets. Like, is it a worse Christmas now? Is your desire to be comforted going to not be met? Because it's, you see how we do this to ourselves. We long to be comforted, and then we miscomfort ourselves. God says this, like, I see everything that's wrong in the world. I see all the injustice. I see all the persecution. And I have not missed one bit of it. And I am God over the whole earth. I've never missed it, not one time. And I'm gonna deal with it. And yet, in the midst of all of that, to those who call out to me, I will bring true comfort, deep comfort that needs to reach to your soul and I'm bringing it myself. I alone am coming. You go shout that from the mountain. God is coming, and with him is the great comfort of God. That's our hope. If Christmas is worth celebrating at all, that should be it. I'll close with this passage. This is just a few chapters later. Just imagine being the wise men coming out of 1 through 39, under the conviction of 1 through 39, this needed conviction of mankind, we are not righteous, and then coming into 40 and hearing, but comfort to you, comfort to those who turn to me. And then you, you hear the nature of the God that's coming in 42. I just, I'll read it. I'll kind of talk alongside of it. Behold, my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Does that sound familiar? I'll say it this way. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you remember that? So John the Baptist 
quotes Isaiah 40, and the Lord practically quotes Isaiah 42. We should not miss that at the baptism of Jesus Christ, God uses almost exactly the language, this is my son in whom I delight, and the Holy Spirit descends down on him. It is as though the ministry of Christ is resurrecting Isaiah and living it out. I have put my spirit upon him, verse one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here's this, this warrior of peace. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So the never-ending kingdom of peace that God's bringing wouldn't snuff out a dying match. He will faithfully bring forth, just, bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This justice in Hebrews, and I'll, we'll pray after this, but this justice in Hebrews is not justice in a judicial sense. It's justice in a holistic sense. What it's saying is this God, this God is coming and with him he's bringing rightly ordered life. Things will be as they ought to be when he comes. He is gonna take that which is broken and rebuild it to that which is not broken. And he's gonna do it and in peace he's gonna do it. He's not gonna... Everywhere else, and every we talk about this, right? Right now at Christmas, we're talking, what do we do with ISIS? What do we do with immigration? What do we do with this? And we meet, and the language of mankind is to meet a threat with a greater threat, is to counter a problem with a greater problem, is to shoot a bigger gun at that gun. That is not God. God says, you go to the hill and you shout comfort because my son is coming in peace. And with him comes true, whole justice. That's our comfort this Christmas. And we don't need to cram it into a day. It has its own drama. And it's not an experience that has its own drama. It's a truth that we live under. And it's a person that we worship. Let's pray, Lord. Father, more than a merry Christmas, we pray that we have a well-ordered Christmas, a thoughtfully reflective Christmas that we think about you in the right way, that when we speak to our children, we, we speak well about you. We put you in order, Lord, for them. And Lord, we ask through your spirit that you would protect us from the miscommunication of comfort in the world that we would not be dissuaded or tempted to look elsewhere, but that we would know that you, you have the words of life. Like Peter said, where else do we go to find these words? Father, I pray for those who are here who don't really know the Lord that you might work in this season to call them closer and to dispel uh, the myths that surround you you have come to save that which was lost. We pray this, Lord, in your name, amen.